Hello, and welcome to another edition of Your Therapist Needs Therapy, the podcast where two mental health professionals sit down and talk about their mental health journeys, as well as how they manage their mental wellness while working in the mental health field. I'm your host, Jeremy Schumacher, and today I am joined by Emily Alexey. Emily, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Emily is a local. Uh, part of my goal with the podcast was to not just talk to other professionals, but also talk to people who are in the area. So I'm in Glendale. You're in Whitefish Bay, right? Yep. Yep. We're right in Whitefish Bay. And for, for non-locals, none of those things mean anything because that's all in Milwaukee. But <laughs> those are the little neighborhood pockets in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. uh, Emily, I, yep. I always start with the same question. How did you get into the mental health field? Yeah, so I was thinking about this, um, and I don't know exactly. I feel like it was kind of a natural progression. Like, I remember being a kid, I was kind of a weird kid, um, and like going to like half price books and buying like psychology textbooks, and my mom being like, mm -hmm. but she let it happen. Um, and then I majored in psychology in college, and then uh, realized that you can't really do anything with a bachelor's in psychology, and then decided to um, get my master's in social work. Um, I worked in for DCFS for a little bit in Illinois, and I was like, I need to do more of the things than just case management. Um, worked a lot with kids and adolescents. That was my thing for a while. And then after having my own kids, got really super interested in perinatal mental health um, and kind of seeing like both my own journey and other parents of like this big hole that seemed like in support and just knowledge about the mental health of new parents um, and wanting that to be better for everybody than it is and that it has been yeah so that's uh a very succinct summary <laughs> it's a lot of years it's a lot of years yeah let's dig in a little bit so uh yeah. i i'm curious because you worded it in a way that i think a lot of people relate to but um going into psychology not realizing that you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree right so really, like, it's yeah not a lot of options there so like little high school Emily being like, ah, I think mm -hmm. I want to do psychology, picking a school based on that. And then like, when did it hit that? Like, oh shit, like, I guess I'll have to go to grad school. Um, I actually remember having a conversation with my advisor in college, like my junior, senior year and saying, I really think I want to go to grad school and them telling me that I would not be successful in grad school. And that like, Number one, why are you telling that to a kid? But like, that like pissed me off enough that I was like, well, I'm gonna do it now. Um, and so I graduated, worked for a little bit, and then and really spent a lot more time thinking about like, what degree do I want here? And knowing that the first one I got, I really couldn't do much with. That was what I wanted to do. Um, and so that's why I chose social work and I did a clinical program um, in Chicago. And because I was like, well, Maybe there's a chance that I'll burn out eventually on therapy and I want to be able to do something else, which should have been a clue to a whole bunch of things for grad school, Emily, um, that she was already preparing to burn out. Um, but yeah, so did that, worked in a bunch of different settings. Um, and yeah, I've not really considered doing anything else. Like it's been. Sure. Yeah, this is a. This is a personal question, but why was your advisor saying you would not be successful in grad school? Um, because well, there was a quite a bit of time where I stopped attending classes. Um, I just didn't go, and then I would take it. <laughs> okay. uh, actually, did much better in grad school than I did in my undergrad. Um, and so I think it was intended to be like, 
hey, we want you to have realistic expectations. Um, but it's also really discouraging because it should have been much more of a conversation of like, if that's what you want to do, if that's where you want to go, what are the things that we need to put in place to help you get there? Like, right. it doesn't need to be like a no, like you're going to fail there, which is very much what it felt like to like 20 year old me. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I had a, uh, my, my undergrad advisor was fantastic. They saved me a lot of time and money, um, because I didn't have a plan and they were like, Hey, you can graduate this year. This is my junior year of college. Like, you can graduate. And I was like, cool. They're like, you should go to Let grad school though. So let's do that. And I was like, Oh yeah. Um, but my grad school advisor was awful. And, uh, I had a similar experience of like, you're not smart enough to do this. Um, which was very bizarre because I was a good student. I had good grades and everything. I just uh, was neurodivergent and so didn't fit in at all. Um, but yeah, I don't understand why advisors say stuff like that. It's very unhelpful yeah. when their job is, you seem to struggle in these areas. Let me help you, not let me shut right. this down for you. Right. And now, again, that makes sense given neurodivergence of like that was a really overwhelming environment. It was really hard time management wise for me there was a lot of like i'm gonna stay up all night doing this 14 page paper that i didn't write until today like if that would have been you know supported and talked about in a different way i think my undergrad would have gone really really differently sure um and you you and i emailed a little bit before this you also yep. have adhd yep so when did you when did you get your diagnosis um so it was suggested to me in college because i struggled a lot in college like mental health wise um just really crashed pretty hard my freshman year um and all the way through it's just like a hard road with a bunch of different struggles and stuff going on um and so it was suggested then and then i actually did not go on meds until about two years ago um because i was like nah that's not true like i would like people think of like the typical like little kid with adhd it's like a boy running around um mm -hmm. It's not a girl who's like super internal and feels everything and, you know, the hyperactivity is internal and not external. Um, sure. So it didn't look like what it should have looked like. And I was able to pull it together and enough in everything before college that I did fine without studying. I still have no idea how to study. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I was able to do well enough through then and sort of skate through and college was a different story. Um, where it just like didn't work in the same way. I couldn't just sort of skate through and not read things and do fine enough on tests. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think there's a lot that's interesting. And um, neurodivergence is a, a passion of mine. Uh, I didn't yeah. get diagnosed till postgrad basically because I went and told this early in their career because I wanted someone young uh, therapist like I know I have ADHD I'm just here for the diagnosis <laughs> um, and I was a terrible client um, but uh, yeah it's it's interesting because right you said like you have no idea how to study same like just cramming stuff at the end uh, grad school was I part of the reason I didn't fit in grad school because I didn't study and so people would be like Sit, standing out in the hallway before we had to take a test and I'd roll in and they'd all be like studying their notes and be like Jeremy did you study and be like study what I don't take notes like <laughs> I don't I don't even understand what you guys have in your notebooks like I like, do you just bring it again to... like what, do, yeah, what like, are you doing now like I need you to actually like, break it down and tell me what studying is because I don't know at some point in college I stopped even taking notebooks because all I did was doodle in them I didn't I didn't ever take notes it just full of scribbles um 
so yeah, it's it's interesting when you don't fit that stereotype and you brought up the gender piece, which I think is is a huge deal. But I would also highlight like the overperforming uh, part of it. Like I got straight A's, I got good grades. I was weeks, if not months ahead in school because I was so bored for content that I was like, well, I guess I'll read the next book or I'll finish this chapter or whatever because yeah. I was yeah. I was bored. And so it was like, Jeremy, go, This is, I'm, I'm old. So like go clap the chalkboard uh the erasers together when we had yeah. old black chalkboards go mm -hmm. put the flag up go take the flag down mm -hmm. like i had all these extra things to do because i was done with everything but nobody was ever like hey maybe you should get him assessed or hey maybe this should happen because i had good grades mm -hmm. and like it's it's right. a weird disservice where i was a shithead when i was young and so i wouldn't have probably taken advantage of anyone working with me or helping me mm -hmm. but like yeah, it makes a big difference on college prep tests and some of the standardized mm -hmm. stuff, which like I was lucky that I just do well on those things. But like, yeah, nobody ever explained how to study like the sophomore year of college. I got a C in a class. And I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't I don't what? know what else my, to my. do. This has never happened to me before. So um, the gender piece, I think, is, is really interesting, though, too, because I do think uh, ADHD typically gets noticed in elementary school, possibly high school, and it is almost always based on purely hyperactivity, which mm -hmm. is a small portion of the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. um, and so, yeah, there's this, this stereotypical piece. And I think there are people who um, the assessing assessing it is done poorly because it's almost always based on school performance as opposed to internal processes mm -hmm. and so like part of the things that even with my diagnosis many years later i'm still connecting dots on is like having sensory issues like that's a thing that would have been nice if somebody would point it out not in like a weird way like why do you do that with your food instead of like <laughs> So I think it's I think it's interesting that you brought up that like yeah it was noticed it caused some impairment but because you were able to skate by kind of went by um, I work with a lot of young well younger to millennial aged females who got diagnosed with anxiety and what they actually have is ADHD because it presents similarly and where their impairment is is that internal process that looks like anxiety but it's actually ADHD. Yep. Yeah. I think that's so true. And then like further with that is I've become super interested in specifically neurodivergence in parents of like a lot of those people, especially women, people raised as females, like doing well enough, being able to like plan around that enough for most of their lives, but you become a parent and there are so many more triggers, so much more like stimuli, so much more overwhelm. And infant like extraordinarily decreased coping skills time to do those things time alone silence quiet stillness all those things it's sensory overload all the time like if you're nursing having a baby on you having a toddler touch you sticky stuff like different foods different so like all of this stuff and so i have a whole host of moms in particular of like why am i so angry all the time and i'm like i actually don't think you're angry i think you're overstimulated mm -hmm. and your brain is like i can't do anymore there's too many things here and so you freak out and yell at everybody because there's there's no way to cope with all of that stimulus happening all the time. Yeah, and if they've made it to this point in life without a diagnosis, they don't necessarily know what's going on. Um, right. 
I work at couples is, is one of my bread and butters. And so the, the seeing the couples uh, trans go through different transitions in life, but also that balancing piece of not just like being a new parent or motherhood, but also if you're neurodivergent and you're in a neurotypical relationship and like mm -hmm. that causes some distress just generally. And then you throw a kid yeah. or a couple pets or a couple kids yeah. and like it becomes <laughs> significantly overwhelming to that point where for somebody who's maybe in their late 20s or early 30s without a diagnosis they have coped well enough they have figured out how mm -hmm. to adjust and like it's that similar to your experience of like high school you could skate by but college was was too much like that's kind of what happens with those life transitions yeah and then like with a job or early marriage early whatever you could get by well enough again so it wasn't as active of a, you know, as active distress or an active conversation. And then you're a parent and there's a screaming baby and you're like, oh my God, why do I hate this so much? This is horrible. Why did we do this? Yeah. And then the gender stereotypes, I think, kick in of what motherhood mm -hmm. is presented as and yeah. all of the social media around mm -hmm. people who are happy with their babies and their house is clean and all that stuff. My house is a hot mess all the time. All the time. <laughs> I, I have three kids and so we had essentially three kids within two years my son is almost nine and then we have twin daughters who are almost seven um and he was like a super intense baby like he was just like which makes sense a lot he's just an intense human but he was just like mad at everything like all the time he was screaming he didn't like to sleep and all sorts of stuff so we're like we should just have another kid right away like that'll be fine right we'll just like get it over with and then we had twins and it's like oh that that tracks okay so it's loud in our house like there's stuff like, like kids move stuff they make noise they're like there's stuff going on and it can be super super overstimulating yeah do you have pets as well we have a cat who is he will probably make an appearance at some point he is large and not intelligent sure he's not he's uh, not a smart fellow so i i came from like the marriage the marriage and family therapy background and so i uh had some like I had some ideas of things I wanted to avoid in, in my own marriage. And so yeah. um, we had like a rule, two years, no kids, no pets. Um, and we broke the no pets pretty early on, but we stuck to the no kids. I think we were married for six years before we had kids, um, which I'm biased towards. I think it works really well. But I think for me, being neurodivergent was helpful for like my wife to learn how to adapt to me a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to joke about like the laundry chair. Um, this concept of like neurodivergent folks have like clothing stored someplace that isn't a closet or a dresser because they're visual and they need to see it. And so everybody who has ADHD, whoever like use that phrase, they're like, and then they like fill in the blank of whatever they use instead. So like all the closet doors are off in our house. All my laundry is in like open face bins, just like looks awful in our bedroom. It's like not a nice setup. It's like, right. Like I, that's so i think those years were helpful for us and then um having a kid we won like the child lottery with our first one who was like super easy slept really well but like almost assuredly has adhd as well and so that's mm -hmm. been then like another layer of i don't want to diagnose my own kid especially when he's five but also like right he's got sensory issues he's got all these things that i dealt with how do i deal with that level of it now yeah. I also laughed at the when, sticky babies because that's they're so thing. sticky all the time. And there's crumbs <laughs> everywhere. Like there's just stuff. Um, when in like your relationship were you diagnosed with ADHD? 
Uh, early on, but this is funny because okay. my wife and I just talked about it, and uh, like okay. a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, it came up recently. Where she's like, "Well, you're all you're still like just self-diagnosed." I was like, "No, like when I went to therapy, like back then, like I got my diagnosis." And she's like, "Oh, I guess you never talked about it." And I was like, "I already knew, like yeah, I just so yeah. yes, it was it, it's interesting." And so she's known for a long time, but I think. Um, I didn't have a good therapist who was like familiar with neurodivergence. So a lot of it has been me connecting dots after the fact or like saying something to a client. And then on my drive home being like, duh, Jer, uh... like, that's you too, you idiot. Why did yes. this take you 12 yes. years to realize? Um, so yeah. Uh, so I was diagnosed early on. So like we knew certain, like certain things, like the laundry was been a thing for a long yeah. time of just like, I need it. I need to see it. I'm a visual person. I need to be able to see things. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I genuinely forget that they exist. Mm -hmm. um, and things like laun laundry tends to be like my big bugaboo. Um, I just like wash laundry multiple loads because I start it and then forget it. And like, mm -hmm. sure, you can set a timer on your phone, but like, I have to remember to do that. So uh, early in our relationship, four. So yeah, like, early in our relationship, this was probably pre-diagnosis. Um, my my then I don't know if we were engaged or if we were just still dating. She got me a planner for Christmas because uh, I'm very disorganized, and she's not. She's like multiple planners that have multiple like color schemes. She's very artistic mm -hmm. and organized, and it's really great. Um, so she got me a planner, thinking like that'll be helpful. And like her birthday is New Year's Eve, and I lost the planner before New Year's Eve. So like between Christmas and New Year's, no idea where yeah. it went. And like she was really offended by that. I was like, I. Right, but like that's my whole, that's the story right. of my life. Like I've never used a planner. I, right. I failed or I got bad grades when I got graded on yeah. like, is your planner filled out? Like, no, and I, I don't know where it is. I think that's, that's an interesting thing about like neurodivergence also because I think people either go in that direction or like that I need to be hyper-organized so I don't forget anything and I'm going to write every single thing down so that there's one place where all the things are. And so like my planner is there's like blocks of time, things are highlighted, there are colors. It's like, there are 57 post-it notes. My husband jokes, he's like, are you gonna make another list? And I was like, probably I'll write, make a list on the list and then I can cross it off. Um, and so I think like that's, you know, that can look like organization, that can look like typical behavior. Right. It can look like anxiety. It can also be there is no other way I can possibly keep all these things in my brain, and at least they're somewhere. Yeah, and I think um, I think there's the the trap of neurotypical thinking that like neurodivergent yeah. means a thing. So like then people with right. ADHD all present this way, and like I always tell Absolutely. people like ADHD has twenty diagnosable criteria. You need six mm -hmm. of them. So that's like. I'm bad at math because right. I didn't pay attention in school. Uh, like six to the 20th power or whatever. Like that's an insane number of right. uh, ways that it can look. So I can diagnose somebody with ADHD who has none of the same diagnostic criteria as me. And even if somebody had the same diagnostic criteria as me, we probably don't do things the same way because there's all these other things. So I talk about like the difference between being an introvert and an extrovert makes a big difference in how your ADHD presents. Um, I have sensory issues and I have hyperhidrosis, which is like overactive sweat glands. So like that sucks because I'm just yeah. warm and sweaty often. And then I have sensory Fun. issues. So Turbo. I hate shit on that my skin. Yeah. 
So it's like, but like, you know, it's stuff like that. So then in a relationship, like your partner starts to get used to those things. That's great. But then it's like, right now we have children and like put sunscreen on them. And I'm like, I don't want to touch that though. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. There's, there's a lot. And I think like, I was looking forward to this episode because I think it's really good for people to hear, like even both of us as mental health professionals are like, yeah, and then you just lose your shit because of course you do because that's what mm -hmm. happens. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, and to, like to that, like I think I do a little bit more self disclosure with my clients than many people do. Of like, my son is a super sensitive kid. That's a really hard thing. That's not a typical parenting experience. Like people feeling aligned on those things. People feeling like, oh, so I'm not the worst parent ever because I screamed at my kids. Nope, definitely do that sometimes too. Do I like it? Absolutely not. Do I handle it in a way that like supports them and gets us both through that? Absolutely. And that's the key is like that. I don't have to be a perfect parent. I don't have to do all these things super well. I am not going to ever because it's not a possible thing, but I can do the repair that's necessary there to support my kids and to support myself and then not beat myself up over it because I should know better or as a professional, I should do things in a certain way or whatever. Like that's not a winnable game. That's never going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. I, I often have this like uh, internal battle when I talk to other professionals about self-disclosure because I feel like I self-disclose a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not like just chatty. It's it's often intentional on like, yeah. you think that I have it all together because you know nothing about my life, not because yeah. I actually have anything together. Like therapy, right. therapist as a blank slate is helpful sometimes. But then mm -hmm. I think oftentimes people put therapists on like a pedestal of like, well, your house must be clean or like you must like having parties or like whatever. And it's like, oh, fuck no. Like the only reason I clean my house is because I have people over because like I need that external motivation to do it. Otherwise, it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, dogs and kids. My house is always messy. Um, but I think it's important for people to like know that there is not an achievable level of like perfection in that way. Like it's right. not a thing that's ever going to happen. Even if you know all the skills, do all the things, there's still some things that are hard. Like even if you're doing everything right or like doing everything that you should or whatever, sometimes stuff's just hard. Yeah. Like that's, that just is. And I think working with like neurodivergent folks, like you put it in quotes, it's a podcast, so people can't see that, but like right and like put it, <laughs> yeah, doing things yeah. right or I doing it the that. correct yeah. way in quotes. Like for most people who have some sort of neurodivergence, like that doesn't make sense. So then they feel like they're doing it wrong all the time. Right because it's not what their brain naturally wants to do. They're generally not going to be a lateral thinker who's necessarily caring about is the house clean, is the checkbook balanced, et cetera, et cetera. I spend a lot of time with couples arguing, uh, not, not that I'm arguing, they spend a lot of time arguing about money and one of them has neurodivergence. And I'm like, they just like, money as a made up concept doesn't make any sense to them. So like, it just doesn't yeah. register as an important thing. I'm like, yeah that's really frustrating to a partner who's like, yes, but it, it does actually matter. It is a thing that we should care about. So, uh, but I think being able to work with those things in, in a different way where you can set a realistic expectation instead of like mm -hmm. this kind of therapist as blank slate or therapist as like perfect example. I, I think that a lot, that doesn't help a lot of people. It doesn't. Um, and I think especially like, and I know like ethics wise, like a lot of us were taught that like, like, taught no self-disclosure, like don't tell anybody your political beliefs, your religious beliefs, whatever. But by the same token, how can I expect somebody with intense trauma to come in 
and feel safe in my office to go to the places they need to go to heal what they need to heal and talk about what they need to talk about without them knowing that I am a safe enough person to do that with. Yeah, and that's like a weird thing that we learned, um, isn't it? Like, I, I definitely yeah. feel like that's a weird holdover. I was never presented any statistics on why that is more beneficial. Um, I think it's a weird holdover from like Freudian, you know, Freud starting the field as psychoanalysis therapist as blank slate. Like, right. I don't know that I was ever given a reason for it. My self-disclosure is almost always around rapport building. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. I have plenty of data to back up that the rapport between therapist and client is the most important thing. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's a weird thing. I, I, I don't know. I have a, you and I are around the same age. So, um, this isn't me being ageist. I, I'll be curious when I have a younger therapist on what they're hearing in grad school nowadays, if that's still kind of mm -hmm. the standard don't self-disclose or if that's loosening up a little bit. Um, yeah, I do wonder if like part of that is that like, because therapy is more, much more common now. And I think people with like less intense, again, air quotes, mental health stuff are in therapy. Whereas I think like a long time ago, it was like, if you're really intense, like if you're like super suicidal, if like all these things are like, really intense and debilitating all the time that people who are dealing with ongoing stressors trauma that doesn't necessarily completely derail their life but needs to be worked on like that that is like a piece of that of like you know if somebody is really intensely mental ill and like psychotic or whatever like you know blank slate may be helpful um but a lot of the people that i see that they're in the same stage of life as me like i think yeah. it's important that people know that like there's not a perfect in this and that you're, you know, you're allowed to make mistakes in all of it. Yeah. I think it's fascinating too. Um, looking back on how I used to do therapy, I started as a marriage therapist before I was married. I've worked a lot with family <laughs> dynamics before I had kids. And so I do think it, what I'm saying hasn't changed a ton, but I do think how I say it and like how I couch a lot of those things changes because I can now throw in like a real life, experience i don't have to make up some client of like well i had a client who had a similar situation and they did this mm -hmm. i can just be like let me tell you about my house <laughs> and and i think that that one builds rapport and also helps to set a more realistic expectation yeah uh you focusing in in perinatal health was that through having kids and that kind of made you care about it mm -hmm. or was that something that you were already interested in and working on at, before you had your own kids um, I was always interested in families and like parenting, even before having my own kids. Um, but I don't even know that I knew that like perinatal mental health was like our thing until I had my own kids, other than like people have like sort of like a nodding familiarity with postpartum depression. And so even yeah. now there are people that come up to me are like, oh yeah, I had postpartum. And I'm like, postpartum what? Like there are many of the things that we can have then. Um, yeah. But yeah, knowing how hard it was like for me to navigate things and figure out what I needed as like a mental health professional who understands insurance and knows the resources and knows the places, accessing that was hard. And seeing a lot of other people like deeply struggle of, I don't know if this is normal or not. I don't know if I need help or not. I don't know if it's bad enough for me to need help or not. Like, and wanting that to be just better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh let's this is where i zoom out a little bit let's define yeah. perinatal health because i yeah. as a assigned male at birth person um know that like with before i had kids a lot of the stuff uh i didn't know like 
perinatal, postnatal, like those are all made up words that like I grew up super religious and it didn't have sex mm -hmm. ed. So like none of yeah. those things made sense. I didn't know like how the menstrual cycle worked yeah. loosely. Most <laughs> until, people still don't. <laughs> yeah, until college. So so like use it, you're in a, a profession where you're using a lot of language that I think is, I'm gonna say jargony. It's definitely yeah. like in group, uh, people who are in it know it and people who are out of it don't. So let's zoom out a little bit for the people who, some of my people, some of my regular listeners are also religious yeah. trauma people. So also didn't get sex yeah. ed. Uh, sure, yeah. So let's talk, what is, what is perinatal health? What does that all encompass? What does that umbrella term cover? Yeah, um, so like pretty much anything reproductive, childbearing and raising related. So like from trying to conceive fertility, infertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, um, the like definition is one year post birth. Um, but a lot of professionals will say like, you're always postpartum, like it's always, you know, a part of your experience and not even talking about just women, because some people will say maternal mental health, but people who are giving birth that are not women, um, male partners, same sex couples, um, non-birthing partners, adoptive families, surrogates, like income, like all of those people who are engaged in that process in some way and are like creating, carrying, having, raising children. Yeah. Which is like a huge scope. <laughs> yep, it, it is. Yeah. And so like maternal or just like postpartum really doesn't even touch on like that all of it. It's just it's a really big, big piece of a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Uh, so going through the process yourself, being a little bit interested, was it you mentioned insurance? Was it seeing how hard it was to get resources? Was it seeing there just aren't a lot of resources? Like, what was it that was kind of like, hey, I want to focus on this now? Yeah, I think it was seeing so many people struggle and not know where to go and what to do, not know how to find resources. Um, and then my like, I had a couple of therapists when my kids were younger that were just not good. <laughs> like, yeah. And they may have been great therapists in other areas, but saying you specialize in like women's health, but like when I'm talking about things I'm struggling with, with three kids, two and under, and you're like, I think you just need to be stricter. I'm like, <laughs> do I know? Like what? What? Yeah. Um, so like really wanting people to get good care in that because like sure. just like good enough care or like care that is you know semi-informed about people in that stage of life is not enough like somebody who's been through 15 IVF cycles trying to explain to somebody about how they got donor sperm shipped like you don't want to do that with your therapist like having to like explain the ins and outs of like a really delicate heart-wrenching process like let's cut that out for a lot of people let's yeah. get informed providers who really know like what baby led weaning is or why we might or might not sleep train or what if you know gentle parenting is or all of these different things so that people can really get the help that they need in the way that they need it yeah um what this is local again but like what's mm -hmm. what is available in the milwaukee area like um yeah. what was your experience of finding care it sounds like finding a therapist who was well informed was was a process and and not an easy one mm -hmm. what was it uh because i know in my experience coming from mental health background my wife and I were both 30 when we had our first kid. So like a little bit older, a little bit more life experience. Mm -hmm. My wife is an early childhood educator, so knows a lot about yeah. early childhood stuff. 
like yeah you get like a pamphlet on like postpartum depression from your ob mm -hmm. and like that's mm -hmm. it like it's like right. hey make or sure like you talk to someone if you want to kill yourself or kill your child because that's not good but like otherwise it's just not like there's not a lot that's presented right. for resources right. and it's not binary in that it's not like either you're fine or like you actively want to die right now like there's so right. much but that is in there I don't want to speak for my wife. I, that's a little bit of like, I was surprised knowing the wide breadth of things that can happen after giving birth, how little was presented in kind of like, here's the spectrum of either like you're okay or you want to die. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess it's good we're talking about it that that much, I guess. It could be worse, right. but like that's pretty bare right. bones. It's not great. Um, is it, most people still are not screened. Most people who give birth, um, like I, it, I hit a bunch of risk factors in a different way of like a history of mental health stuff. And like um, having multiples can be a risk factor for perinatal mental health. And there's like all sorts of different things that sort of like pick up your risk. I got screened like once at my six week visit and it wasn't even like true screening. It was like, you're not depressed or anything, are you? And I was like, <laughs> well, who's going to say yes to that? Like who really is like, actually, <laughs> Yeah. when you don't really know what's going on you don't have a frame of everything that's happening and that's still pretty early in the postpartum process like you don't even know which way is up at six weeks postpartum like you're barely right. making it through the day and to try to think through what do i need and i guess not like i don't know yeah you're sleep deprived your emotions are haywire your hormones are haywire like yeah. and i will i will say i think that's uh such a weird professional thing for a medical professional who's uncomfortable with mental health is mm -hmm. going to frame it that way because mm -hmm. I've worked in an athletics world a lot and seen a lot of athletic trainers frame mental health questions that they are correct in mm -hmm. asking very poorly because they don't yeah. want to get a suicide assessment. They don't want to have to do a full suicide assessment or like it's very leading because the person asking it is uncomfortable with the potential responses. Yeah. And that like that doesn't hit on anxiety, postpartum OCD birth trauma, postpartum psychosis, like, or partners at all. Like, we know that if a birthing person, in most of the research is like heterosexual couples, is has postpartum depression, their partner is a 50% chance of ha also having depression. Mm -hmm. Like, so if your spouse who gave birth has depression, you as a partner have a 50% chance of having it also. So now we've got yeah. two parents that are caring for a new baby, maybe other children trying to work, trying to keep their house together, and they're both depressed and not doing well like we don't want that that's not yeah. great and with like i'll get political here with yeah. six weeks of of uh usually just leave for the birthing person uh not mm -hmm. for both parents like and yeah. it's so weird I, i've been looking at getting a therapy dog and like you cannot you cannot purchase a dog before eight weeks yep. like it yeah. is illegal to separate right. a, a puppy from their their right. parent before eight weeks and like we do less than that for humans right. it's very and bizarre for most people it's unpaid right and so then it's a like even if i get more i have to go back yeah and, and fmla it, is like what a fucking nightmare um <laughs> it's all a fucking nightmare <laughs> yes i don't speak highly of insurance companies that's why i don't deal with them um but yeah like you know you have you have all these things going on um your body is is in recovery even if you had like a wonderful birth experience uh there's a bunch of stuff that for 
two for sure two calendar years and then like that's where personal variability comes in but at least two years of like on a molecular level your body's still recovering and mm -hmm. so like right you're supposed to do insurance or you're worried about getting paid or you're worried about like i love this tiny human i brought into the world and i don't want to go back to work but what does that look like and i'm supposed to figure that out while i'm sleep deprived like it's so right. it's such nonsense it is. It's great that it's you work with it because I'm getting like agitated just talking about like what a fucked up system we have. <laughs> it's honestly terrible. Uh, like the system itself. I love, I absolutely love the work though. Like it is, um, I think just a really magical time period to work with. Like I love it when people bring their babies to my office. I love like bring your screaming kid. You do not need to apologize when they get 57 smashed whatever pups on my floor like i gotta vacuum out vacuum it up like yeah. but you know helping people through that time period and in that time period is just really truly an honor yeah um and that's like such a lovely sentiment that i'm gonna trample all over here uh <laughs> let's let's Do talk it. about trauma uh because yeah. trauma is one of my other things that i'm very passionate about and and i think because personal experience i i used to think i was a good trauma-informed therapist and then i learned that i wasn't um <laughs> and actually got the training that i needed to be able to work with trauma so let's how did you learn that you weren't honestly by like learning more about it and being like oh yeah. dang like i I have yeah, been I noticing it and assessing it correctly and then not handling it very well sure. um, because I never advertised as somebody who who specialized or worked with it. So I mm -hmm. thought I was I was like in cover your ass mode as a therapist of like, I'll just mm -hmm. refer that out. And mm -hmm. like, that's not at all how trauma actually works. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but it was it was getting the training and being like, oh, I thought I knew this stuff and mm -hmm. like I. I didn't. I knew how I knew like what it looked how to look for it some of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not enough. And so um yeah, I'm I'm curious and I like to talk about trauma because knowing people who are listening to this are often therapists. I think it is good mm -hmm. to like encourage people to learn more about trauma. So you mentioned birth trauma, um, yeah. like the physical act of giving birth. Let's start mm -hmm. there because yeah. I think uh as a person who was holding my partner's legs because we gave birth on a weekend, which meant there just were no doctors apparently. Like it's a very unexpected thing that like, I think again, a lot of people kind of have this idea of what childbirth is supposed to be like, but it's this widely variable experience for people. Yeah. Um, I think, it is especially in birthing people it's important i think to recognize the trauma that exists even before that so people of color um women in general who many have experienced sexual trauma in different ways people who have experienced medical trauma in different ways racism um you know, like so many things that lead up to you know potentially the time a person is giving birth which is a super vulnerable thing like your body's doing weird stuff you're not really sure Maybe you know the providers and you've met them before, but maybe not because you might just get whoever is on call um, and then actually going through birth. And even if things go like well, for the most part, or there isn't anything super scary and everybody's okay at the end, I think a lot of people are left feeling like, what the fuck just happened? Like there's some, yeah. like, yeah, ultimately like everything was okay-ish, but like, I don't feel good about some of the stuff that happened here. And I think it's paying respect to that trauma also of like maybe it's not like big t trauma where you thought you were gonna die but like 
your provider spoke to in a way that was really triggering or like you didn't feel safe because of xyz with your providers or things weren't explained to you and that is reminiscent of a different time in your life where people do things to your body without your permission right. um inviting other people into the room consent a lot of doctors really suck at consent like i'm gonna do this now no that's definitely not how we ask for consent um and no you don't have to do that so just like wait a minute um yeah. so it's all of those pieces of things and that's if things go like reasonably well um right. and then i have a lot of clients who uh, like there is really scary stuff that happens of i almost died my baby almost died my baby did die and people really not knowing how to support that um yeah. and even my clients who ultimately like everybody was okay in the end like are now fine a lot of like invalidation of that. Well, at least she's healthy. Well, at least you're okay now. Great. Yes, that's obviously the outcome we wanted, but also none of that was okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, going back to like the systemic piece, I, yeah. I don't remember how it came up. I know my wife and I mutually did a lot of work of being like, here's how we can talk to doctors and nurses. I think I knew a lot of like, I had worked with so many clients who had nurses or doctors who didn't listen to them. Yeah. Um, and my wife is is fantastic with children, early childhood educator, and less fantastic, less comfortable setting boundaries with adults. And so, like, it was a thing that she knew she wanted to, like, be better at and work on. And so, like, there was a lot of, like, feedback with, with doctors and nurses and just of, like, well, like, that person is not here or we don't have someone else. Like, they're, like, my wife was, like, for the, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I want to say the cervical check, but like, that's not the right mm -hmm. phrasing of it. Um, but like when she was in labor, like she was saying every time they were checking her dilation, like it hurt. And mm -hmm. so it's just like, is there a different nurse who can do it? Like what else is available? It was just like really terrible mm -hmm. feedback from the people who were working there mm -hmm. and right. Like our doctor or her OB who she'd been working with and liked and did a lot of research to pick to find someone she was comfortable with wasn't in the building when we gave birth. Yep. And like, so there's just all these things that I think like there are. I wouldn't even call them microaggressions. I'd say they're like full on aggressions, but like mm -hmm. that women get treated differently um, yeah. in the medical like, field. Further, women of color, like if we're looking at maternal mortality rates, particularly through the pandemic, like it's astronomical and terrifying for women of color. Yeah. So to go into a hospital, being able to set boundaries, being able to like, you know, it, whether you've had existing trauma or not, know you're safe in those spheres, like that is, that is not a thing. Yeah. And even I would say the OB, and this isn't to like make it about men because I don't think it's the same at all. But like my wife's okay. OB, who she really like spends a lot of time picking out, was like, I would say weirded out by the fact that I was at every appointment. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like was just like uncomfortable with it. And some of that was because I wanted to be, and some of that was because it was easier for my wife to speak up uh mm -hmm. or to like set her boundaries when she knew i was there with her instead of having to do mm -hmm. it by herself but like it was just like yeah i don't know there's a lot of like weird spaces with it doctors that think can be kind of weird to begin with but then yeah. like yeah there are all these these different ways where it's like if you're not prepared to advocate for yourself like mm -hmm. the medical field's just gonna blow right past your boundaries and never even like ask or check right and a lot of those things are like stated or asked or requested as non-negotiable of like you know you mentioned like cervical checks it's not actually necessary in labor to know how far you've progressed like mm -hmm. the, it, it's done as common practice it's not necessary 
And unless you know that, are you going to say no to it? Do you feel like you can say no to it? Do you feel like you can say no to your provider without repercussions of some kind? Like right. there are a lot of layers there. Yeah. And like the giving birth process being like a thing that's happening, but you don't have a ton of control over it. And so mm -hmm. it's like, right, like you don't want to do, you don't want to set a boundary for yourself that might put your baby at risk. But when you don't have an idea of what the actual risks are, it's really hard to make an informed decision when you are not informed. Right. Right. And you're trusting providers who, like, a lot of people are induced. Are the inductions necessary or is it more convenient because your doctor's on call or it's during the week or it's during the day and not in the middle of the night or whatever? Right. Like, is that truly necessary? Is that the best course of action here or not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just to, like, caveat, I'm not a medical professional. Do not listen to my medical advice, but, like, be informed <laughs> and ask questions and, you know. Right. Yeah. I'm. I'm <laughs> I'm a big uh, advocate for uh, helping clients advocate for themselves, which is yeah. to say like, right, I'm not a doctor. I don't a lot of that stuff. But when you have find a doctor or you have somebody who you build that rapport with and you can have those conversations comfortably with your experience is significantly better than when it's just rolling in and like taking everything they say at face value. Okay. And like knowing those things is just making an informed decision for you. Like if you're in labor and you're like, I want to have cervical checks because I want to know because that feels encouraging to me or that, you know, I want to call my doula at a certain point or I want whatever right. at a certain point or whatever. That's great. Just know what the situation is and ask questions and, you know, know what you're comfortable with and what works for you. And then I think too, and this is just purely from experience, otherwise I wouldn't know to have this conversation, <laughs> different pregnancies go differently. And like, that sounds obvious, but like my wife, based on her first experience with our first child, wanted a different experience for our second. Mm -hmm. And so like had a much more like in-depth birth plan and had a lot of things that she was doing that like, I would say there was gentle pushback from the medical field, but nothing like, I mean, it wasn't like, we were at a hospital, we weren't doing like, I don't know, we weren't doing anything unsafe. It was just like, she didn't want yeah. the epidural. She didn't like, she yeah. wanted to stand up and walk around. Yeah. She didn't, and like, she mm -hmm. just had a much more, I think she felt more in control because she was mm -hmm. doing the things that she had researched and that she felt comfortable with. And well, in comparison to giving birth that first time, I was a big fan because I wasn't involved in the birth at all. So it wasn't like you hold this leg, I'll hold this leg and we'll hope the doctor makes it in on time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I think like sometimes it's it's experiential and like being okay with like, well, if that wasn't like if that experience wasn't what you wanted it to be, like advocate for yourself and and set up so that you can have a different experience. The medical field is unlikely to change in drastic ways, probably right. between you're gonna when when you're gonna have kids. So it's like, right. yeah, you yeah. you really do have to advocate for yourself and set those boundaries. For sure. And I think it, you know providers also acknowledging that even if a birth goes okay there can still be loss there there can still be grief of like that's not what i wanted i didn't want to be induced i wanted to labor at home i didn't want antibiotics i didn't want to have a scheduled c-section i wanted to do skin to skin right away like all of those are losses in different mm -hmm. ways and even if like ultimately again we're okay at the end paying respect to those losses and not minimizing them yeah so how do you I guess, introduce the concept of something around like trauma. If your mm -hmm. clients are not, if you're fairly certain that's what's going on, but your clients aren't necessarily using that framework or are unaware of like yeah. that going on. Um, that's a big question. I'm going to say it depends on the situation. And it's sure. like, I think it depends on 
the client's insight understanding their wording to me like the word trauma itself is not necessarily the important piece like we can talk about concepts we can talk about triggers we can talk about trauma responses we can talk about all those things without ever using the word trauma if that's it's accessible and that is what is right for somebody at that point um i also think it's important not to be conscious of like labeling that for people if it's like oh shit, well i didn't know that was trauma like oh god now i'm traumatized i mean that's true whether you we use the word or not um (laughs) yes but you know meeting people where they're at in terms of that of like it it, the word is not important validating the experience knowing that you're allowed to have feelings about that knowing that you're allowed to heal from that that it is a thing those are the important pieces yeah um and i think i'm not a, a female identifying person uh i think it seems to me that there's much better support now than there used to be it seems like even though there's still those social media sites that are photoshopping you know and and you know those people who are trying to present the perfect family like i think there is more um peer-to-peer support available at least Mm -hmm. uh for people after they give birth and for young parents new parents early in the process people has that have you kind of seen that grow as well Yes, for sure. And I know you asked earlier about kind of like what's available locally. Um, We are super fortunate in Milwaukee that we have an organization called Moms Mental Health Initiative. Um, It's a nonprofit that is focused on peer support. Um, And it was started by two moms who struggled postpartum and were like, this is not okay. We need to do something about this. Um, So they've got an online support group that's hosted on Facebook. They've got a provider list on their website, um, connections with lots of maternal child health organizations. Um, and speak a lot and are just a really great, really great local resource of even, you know, calling them, emailing them and saying like, hey, I need to find a provider and these are my parameters, or I don't know if I need help or not or whatever. Um, They do a really, really great job of supporting people and helping them connect with what they need. And that's actually how I got um, started with getting trained in perinatal mental health as I reached out to them and I was like, how do I start here? What do I do? So, and just, and I think one of the really super cool things about the kind of perinatal mental health niche in general is that a lot of us have been there and our parents and get it in a different way. And I think there's, Mm -hmm. um, there's truth and authenticity in that of truly understanding, like, if your kid is sick, like, you're not going to, don't come to your appointment, like be home with your sick kid. Like if you are up all night with your baby, bring your baby, we'll figure it out. Like, you know having the flexibility and that of like really validating a parent experience and knowing like that's not like non-compliance with treatment that's not non-commit like not committing to therapy that is real life that is you know imperfect therapy in those situations i think is better than none yeah for sure um I don't know why this this fired in my brain, but it did. Um, it's interesting. I think you, you said like we're blessed uh, to have like some good resources in Milwaukee, which I think is really great. Um, I think it's it's frustrating to see how poor the the medical system is in supporting people who are having birth, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then seeing some of the like politicians, you know, like some of the states that are passing the most restrictive mm-hmm. reproductive laws are the states that have the worst outcomes for both. Mm-hmm child and birth giving person like you know like missouri has the worst like maternal outcomes and they have one of the strictest um reproductive laws on the books Mm -hmm. and it's like okay gang like obviously you're doing a terrible job of this and then you're trying to like limit 
uh, information that are accessible to people, limit their options, and like try and make medical decisions for them when you're not a medical professional. And like, where's the where's the evidence or the research behind the decisions that you're making, and if they truly help and support and you know encourage you know I think support's the best word anybody or not. Like, right. what are the actual impacts of the decisions that you're making? Are you a person who actually knows anything about birth, about parenting? Like, right. are you, do you have any idea about what that looks like for people, about what the services available for people postpartum, um, the services that like in terms of, you know, insurance and food and childcare and all sorts of things. There was just a, another, um, like funding change in, Childcare, so but like four hundred childcare centers across Wisconsin are closing. What do you want parents to do? Right. Like, there's a limit there of like it's just not a sustainable thing for a lot of people. And then we're leaving people alone without any support and just like good luck. Hope things go yeah. fine. It's not going to go fine. <laughs> like, it's not going to go fine. Yeah. Well, and yeah. right, and like I come from a religious trauma perspective, so knowing like most organized religions are terrible about sex education and they want to limit sex education and we know that has terrible outcomes whereas a comprehensive sex ed is so much better for people mm -hmm. and so like yeah i would say obviously we know that these decisions are not being made with research in mind that's being right. done in total opposition right. which is frustrating i don't know again why i brought that up other than to make us all sad about it <laughs> we change it from the inside like it um yes so but but again i think that's where like peer-to-peer -peer support has been really helpful obviously having professionals who are trained in it and and well um informed on it is helpful but i do think that a lot of this has been like moms going through the experience being like well that sucked and like feeling on an yeah. island and then connecting yeah. to people and being like oh that experience mm -hmm. is not that unusual and it would be great if, yes, it was a better experience from the get-go, right. but I think right. it's it's better for people to have that space. Um, circling back a little bit, there's a method to my madness. On the front end of trying to get pregnant, finding out you're pregnant, et cetera, like, is there uh, support growing there as well, or has it been predominantly support for people after they give birth? I think there's support growing there, and there's acknowledgement growing there of all that, of, like, pregnancy is terrifying for a lot of people considering whether you want to become a parent is terrifying for a lot of people and so i encourage people like if you're feeling some of that distress like see somebody then like i have people who come to me that are like we might start trying in a couple years but i know that i need to do some stuff here first to figure mm -hmm. some of this out because pregnancy is terrifying physically to me or birth sounds awful or my parent was really terrible and i don't want to do that and i'm really really scared that i'm going to be an awful parent we can talk about those things. Like yeah. those things all need support. It is not just, okay, once you actually give birth that you need support in that. Yeah. And I think it's such a crazy complex thing because it's, it's on the one hand, it's the personal experience of giving birth. It's the personal experience of getting pregnant. It's that generation, the parents, mm -hmm. but then you're introducing a brand new generation by having yeah. kids. And then it gets into all this intergenerational stuff around parenting, around intergenerational mm -hmm. trauma, around mm -hmm. all this other stuff. And so it's yeah. it's not just like, what was your birth experience? Or like, yeah. how have you recovered from that? Or how are you doing emotionally with that? Then it's like, oh, right, you're trying to keep this tiny life form from sticking a fork in a, a socket all the time. Like, <laughs> how's that going? And yeah, right. and so so there, there are these uh, 
I don't even want to say dual processes because there's so many more than two. There's there's all these varied processes going on all at the same time. And then with limited resources, even just from like, I think a brain capacity thing, I make a huge deal for about sleep for people. And we mm -hmm. know that new parents are not getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, there are all these processes going on. And then it's, I don't want a parent like my parents did, or I have trauma or whatever from how I was raised. I know what not to do, but I don't know what I should be doing instead. Right. And I, I see so many like parents with like either new babies or young children who are like, I thought I was fine with how he's parented. Like I thought I dealt with it. I thought I had healed from that. But in those moments when my kid is screaming at me, I can't not like immediately go to what my parents did, which is shutting it down emotionally or being reactive or whatever. And then mm -hmm. the guilt and the shame that come along with that of like, I thought I had done that. I thought I was fine and clearly not fine. I'm intensely triggered. Oh my God, I'm the worst parent ever. I'm like, well, number one, the simple fact that you realize all of that means you're absolutely not like that you have right. some insight and you're aware of it. But then like, what do we do with that to make parenting feel tolerable for you? Knowing that there are triggers there, that it brings you back to a lot of stuff, even stuff that you thought you resolved. Like, how do we help you navigate that so that things don't feel awful? Even if pregnancy was fine, even if birth was fine, even if you didn't struggle, um, like initially, there are so many, again, so many triggers <laughs> mm -hmm. in so many ways, so much overstimulation and just not the same ability to cope and resources pre-kids. Yeah. Yeah. And resources just even from like, we don't support childcare either. And like the difference between somebody who has a, a parent who's retired and can give free childcare mm -hmm. versus somebody who yeah. has to try and find an age appropriate, developmentally mm -hmm. appropriate childcare is right. nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, like, my kid is sick. One of us just stay, has to stay home. Who does that? Which right. one of us is going to stay home? Which one has less consequences for calling out of work? Can one of us work from home? Maybe, maybe not. Can one of us do calls when a kid is there? Like as a therapist, like I can't really be home. Like I can't see clients when my kids are sick. Like right. they, they won't, they are clingy, clingy children and they are not cool with that. <laughs> like, yeah. and I would be distracted. Like I can't, that's not a thing that I can do. Um, right. So, it, you know, navigating all of that is just really tricky, which is why I recommend that everybody make a postpartum plan with their partner so that you're clear in your expectations and roles and have conversations about things before you're like whisper screaming at each other in the middle of the night. Yeah. And I talk a, a ton about support system because a lot of people, um, you just, I don't you're in a weird space when you have a child under two, I would say, but even before school, because a lot of that social support kicks in when your kid's in school. And so then you're meeting other parents, you have kids who yeah. you have something naturally in common because your children are in the same grade. And so you can relate on like a life stance thing. But if you're the first group of people in your friend group to have kids, that's very alienating. If you're the last person in your friend group to have kids, that's very alienating. Like they're just all these. If everybody else did and we struggled with infertility for five years and they didn't wind up with a child. Right. Like that's, there's a lot there. Yeah. And like, we didn't even touch on like at least 30%, but definitely more of, <laughs> of people have miscarriages. Like, yeah, there's so much that I think goes into this. I think definitely the conversation is opening up. Like it's still pretty far behind where it where it could be, where I think we have the research saying it it should be. I don't like using the word should, but like I would say yeah. we have the research basis to say, like, yes, we know how we could be doing this better if it was funded mm -hmm. and we had opportunity and resources for people. There's not and prioritize that. Like not just, you know, reproductive limitations, but like how do we support new parents then? 
how do right. we help people get through that? Yeah, for sure. And everybody cares about kids, supposedly, and yet <laughs> we, we, don't have, we don't have the funding and the resources for these things. It's wild. Um, yeah. So this is this is fascinating. Let's let's shift gears a little bit, kind of abruptly. I could have you back on for a full another hour just to talk about parenting. Um, <laughs> I get chatty, so no, it's good. Um, I always I a lot of my guests so far have also been neurodivergent, and I like to joke that like the neurodivergent brains just find the other neurodivergent brains so they can vibe together. Um, I always like to ask, like, uh, what are you watching or what's on your bookshelf? It can be professional things or like your recreational things. Let's shift a little bit to like your your self-care and kind of how you navigate that. Yeah. So I will say that as a therapist and as a parent who is neurodivergent, figuring out my own self-care and my own boundaries and limits to keep myself in a better spot has been a very long and evolved process. Um, and so I am home alone today because I need a home alone day during the week and I'll, I'll work during that, but like I need to be in my space alone with quiet and not, you know, kids screaming at me. Um, so that's a big part of my own self-care. Um, so I have um, a book that I'm reading right now called Emotional Labor. Um, and it talks about kind of along the lines of things that we've talked about is sort of the mental load of parenting um, and how that split in couples often um, not equitably. And mm -hmm the sort of like the unseen labor of um, mental emotional tasks and how those weigh into how people navigate parenting and just being a part of um, like a family system, which is a, a, a pretty big emerging conversation of how is the mental load split? What does, you know, a mental emotional load mean? How do we split those things up in our family or in our marriage or in our co-parenting relationship in a way that is you know, reasonable for both of us. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of us are taught through, you know, experience or, you know, whether they're explicit or implicit messages about what roles are in a marriage or partnership or family of like dads do this and moms do this or men do this or women do this yeah. or the person at home does this or you're better at that, you know, um, and having those conversations, which a lot of us do not have. So, right. and by reading it right now, I mean, I got it from the library and I read the back of it and so I'm really excited to read it. Um, it's on your, it's literally on your bookshelf. Right. It's going to get in through osmosis, but I am really excited yeah. about it. Um, and then for fun, I read a lot of like uh, murdery books, which my husband is like, I don't understand how that's helpful for you. And I was like, I don't know, but yeah. I like It's them. a whole thing. My wife listens to yeah. uh, my favorite murder. And so I'll walk in mm -hmm. and she'll be like, yeah. you know. I don't know, doing doing something, and she's listening to this like horrific murder case. Like, how how you okay. doing? Are you okay? <laughs> you okay? Yeah, this is this is really funny. I love this podcast. Okay, good. Yeah, but I just read one that was set in Wisconsin, um, which was really interesting to have like I don't know, very Wisconsin things like sure. in the book. It was cool. We have a strong uh, history with very famous murderers, so. We do. We do. Go Wisconsin. We do. Claim to fame. Coming to Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how do you how do you kind of balance that? Are you somebody who like um, engaging with things intellectually is is helpful for you? Like when you're not seeing clients, is reading material and like continuing your education not in like the continuing ed that's required sort of way, but like personally reading the things, or do you need to like turn your brain off and like find something that's unrelated? 
um, I need to turn my brain off and do something that's unrelated and just sort of like divert from that a little bit um, is important to me. Yeah, I found very much that like stillness and quiet are important to me in a way that mm -hmm. I really did not understand at all, especially before I had kids. Um, that's just like, that's really important being in my body enough. So like doing yoga or like taking a bath or walking or stretching or whatever, and really noticing what's going on physically and how, you know, where's that coming from and how is that impacting my mood and how is that impacting my reactions and whatever else, um, is a, is a pretty good way for me to do that too. Yeah. And you said this has been a long process for mm -hmm. finding what works for you. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. I, I, I related to that. I think I've shifted even my own perspective on like, I don't do habits. My brain doesn't do them. So I've, I've really shifted to thinking in terms of like rhythms because like for the past year and a half, I've really focused on my sleep, which is a whole thing with neurodivergence uh, for people of ADHD. A lot of them are terrible sleepers and like, it's just not a thing that gets talked about a ton. Um, and so I really like focused on my sleep and that's been helpful, but it's, it's also this thing where it's like, I'm in and out of workout routines. It's not like a thing mm -hmm. where it can be like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to do yoga. And like, yeah. I might get three to six months of that, but it's not going to be a forever thing. That's just not how my brain works. And so I think it's like this constant kind of checking in because mm -hmm. it's, it's not like I got it. I figured it out. I know what self-care looks like for me and I will do it forever from now on. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. No, like I literally write it down because if I don't write it down, I won't do it. Like yep. I literally will write, like, how does your body feel today? Okay. I got to do that. All right. I can like recognize what's going on. And I think, you know, a lot of neurodivergent people, but a lot of women, a lot of helpers are taught to ignore their own needs and, you know, not pay attention to the things inside you that are screaming or the pain, the physical pain that's there or, you know, limits when the message is help other people and do your best and do all of these things and like be kind and like be a martyr. And then it's like, well, at what expense? Like what's yeah. going on then for that person? That's the helper. How do they meet their own needs? Um, and there's, you know, I could talk about that yeah. all day too. Lots of layers. Yeah. Of no kidding. And like grind culture and like owning your own business mm -hmm. and like, yeah, a yeah. lot of that stuff under we could just sum it up by being like capitalism really sucks and isn't helping anyone capitalism. Um, no. <laughs> um okay so yeah um uh, there's so much more that we could get into here because we didn't so even talk about more. uh the business owner part of it which i'm always very curious yeah. about but um let's i guess i brought it up let's do it um, okay. we're okay for time. Uh, how, how did that go with you? Kind of, you, you changed your specialty, perinatal, peri doing perinatal mm -hmm. work to like business owner, opening your own place, mm -hmm. doing your own thing. Yeah. I think I underestimated it, honestly. Um, okay. kind of like the, you know, the neurodivergent urge to like fall into something all the way. Um, and learning to moderate that a little bit has been a tricky thing for me. Of like, mm -hmm. I could easily like work all the time, essentially. And like, but I wouldn't be okay. So yeah. being really conscious about like, I need to stop. I need to not look at work things in the, you know, in the evening. I need to not do all of those things and being really intentional about stopping that sometimes. Um, so that I think has been a lot, especially with having young kids. It's trying to mm -hmm. balance all of those things, um, build a business. And I also like, officially opened my practice in March of 2020, which was like a... <laughs> sure. It'll always, I feel like it's always that reaction to people like, oh, okay, good, that went well. Um, yeah. And they've been in the works for a long time. Um, 
and I had, you know, planned to open it and then the world shut down. I was like, ah, crap. Um, what am I going to do here? (laughs) Um, that things I think just progressed in, um, a different way and then expanding to a group. So I have now three employees and an intern. And so managing other people, learning to do that in a way that is good for me and good for them, um, setting up an environment that supports people as employees um, of, I don't care if you do your notes at home, go ahead. I don't want to like micromanage your time. If you want to take a nap in your office between clients, I don't really care. Like, yeah. do you, I like maybe don't fall asleep in a client session. That'd be cool. But like, yeah. I do what you need to do to take care of yourself in that. Cause I think a lot of us have worked in environments that did not support that. And we're very yeah. like grind culture of like, you know, you have to give all of yourself to this and not recognizing the humanity in that. And that like, we are people and we have needs and they're different. And, you know, if you want to see your clients from five to 9 PM each night, I don't really care. If you want to see them in the mornings when you have childcare, I don't really care if that works. Cool. Like let's support people in that. And so that is, is one thing that I've worked really hard to try to do. Um, And I need to remember those things for myself sometimes too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I, I've talked about this with a bunch of other of my guests on the podcast, but like not getting messaging that supports opening your own business, not getting any business training in our psychology backgrounds. And so like, it can be kind of a daunting thing. I think you, you said you underestimated it. I think I overestimated how difficult it would be. And then I put it off for way too long. So then I was working at agencies that weren't good fits or I was an independent contractor with like these yucky contract splits for what my reimbursement rate was. And like, it just, so yeah, it was a lot of like, grinding there and never really feeling like I got ahead because I was scared to open a business because I thought it'd be so much work. And I was like, oh, that, yeah, that part of my like the, ADHD that got me through school kind of got me through opening a business too. Right. I do like, sometimes I'll be in like therapist groups though. And people would be like, I didn't know that quarterly taxes were a thing. And I was like, how did you not know that? Like, did you, <laughs> you didn't read the whole internet before you started? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. You didn't Google that's, everything before you tried this? I don't get that's it. That's a good reminder that I probably didn't pay my quarterly taxes yet. <laughs> <laughs> pay your quarterly taxes, guys. I'm I'm that I'm that therapist who's like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. So I am lucky that my husband, who helps me with businessy tax financial things, is a he's an engineer by degree. And so he's very like logical, rational, like sure. He'll be like, okay, transfer the money so we can pay the taxes. And I'm like, got it. Thank you. Yeah. I like your spreadsheet for this reason. A lot of those, a lot of the neurodivergent people uh, do, I think, find those type A personalities to kind of balance them out. And the type A personalities are attracted to the neurodivergent folks who seem yeah. so like kind of freewheeling and not yeah. uh, beholden yeah. to the rules. Right. So the other day he was like, yeah. "I like your ideas," and I was like, "Do you?" Because I'm <laughs> a little wonky sometimes, but good. Yeah. Um, Emily, this has been awesome. I, I do think yeah. maybe we'll circle back sometime and talk parenting because that's you. a huge topic yeah. too. Um, if people are interested in learning more about you, learning more about your practice, where do they find you? What do you got out there? Yeah, so our website is arrowwellnesstherapy.com. Um, Facebook and Instagram are Arrow Wellness Therapy also. Um, internet the best way to find us we are right in whitefish bay we're in the fox bay building if anybody has any idea where that is um and yeah that's the best please feel free to reach out to me whether you want to see somebody our practice or not or you just need some ideas for like where do i start finding support or hey i'm really looking for um a therapist in perinatal mental health and i don't know where to start um 
we've found through a lot of conversations that most postpartum or perinatal people have like one attempt at reaching out in them like reasonably energy wise and if they get shut down they're not going to circle back and get help so we really work hard to like even if we're not the right fit for somebody and i think you've said before like rapport is the most important thing goodness to fit with your clinician is like infinitely important if we're not the right people for you like i can help you find somebody that is um yeah so please reach out if you're looking for support we're all in this together and the tiny bit of uh, prep work that I do for this, I did have your website up earlier and you you have like some drop down menus that even have resources listed that's outside yep. of your practice, which I think is is really great. It's what I look for with people that I'm working with for people who don't have that like scarcity mindset of like work with me and be really car salesman, but like just be like mental health is hard. Please get the help that you need, even if it's not with us. Yeah. So like, I, yes, like, I actually is- don't want you to see me if I'm not the right fit for you. Like, I don't want that for you. Like I want right. you to have the right person and that's not always me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, we'll have all those links in the show notes. Uh, most of my stuff is on Instagram. So we'll do all that stuff that'll be listed. So it's nice and easy for everyone to find. Uh, as always, I'm Jeremy. All my stuff is at wellnesswithjared.com um, and has you know all my different links and locations there. Um, Emily, this has been really great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And to all the listeners out there, thanks for tuning in once again. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Take care, everyone.